It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and I'm back in the hosting seat, which has been most ably filled by George Parker for the last two weeks. In this episode, we'll be digging under the hood of the junior doctor's strike to explain who is in the right and how this dispute points towards the future challenges for the NHS. Plus, we'll also be examining the current state of the British newspaper industry and how Fleet Street will deal with the EU referendum. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by some of the FT's finest analytical minds. Sarah Neville, the FT's public policy editor, economics reporter Emily Cadman, Robert Shrimsley, managing editor of FT.com, and Henry Manns, our outgoing media correspondent and incoming political correspondent. Thank you all for joining. So let's begin with junior doctors who have been out on strike again this week. The health secretary, Jeremy Hunt, is remaining firm in his commitment to bringing in a new contract to deliver the seven-day NHS, arguing the current arrangements are unfair and outdated. Whereas the BMA, the trade union representing the doctors, saying Mr Hunt is being a bully and is doing the wrong thing for the health service. So Sarah Neville, could you begin by explaining where this strike came from? Because the definition of a junior doctor is quite broad. There's a lot of figures banded about, about weekend deaths and workloads and overtime. It's all very confusing. I think if you could just begin by saying what this strike is about and who's in the right and wrong here, if it's able to say that. I think in a way it starts with Jeremy Hunt, the health secretary, and the first thing he had to deal with when he came into office about three years ago was the aftermath of a really devastating failure of the National Health Service in a a hospital in the English Midlands where hundreds of people died and there were the most dreadful revelations. This is mid-staffs. This is mid-staffs. The care was not only, you know, in many cases very clinically incompetent, but it was also extremely inhumane. And that has shaped... Mr Hunt's entire approach to the National Health Service and that's the genesis of his absolute determination to make the quality and the safety of the service his real legacy as health secretary and that's where we come to the junior doctors because this is a subset of a broader fight that he's having with the profession over the need for the National Health Service to be of equal quality on every single day of the week. At weekends, consultants, the most senior doctors are much less likely to be on duty. And there are a number of studies which have suggested that the result of this, or the result in general of the National Health Service not being as well staffed at weekends, is that significantly more people die. Your your chance of, of, of dying is significantly higher if you're admitted on a weekend than on a weekday. And even though these figures are disputed, I think there is a broad acceptance that there is at least some weekend effect 
So to try and solve this, Mr Hunt is introducing this new contract which is to bring what the Tories have termed a seven-day NHS. But as we've seen from um, the junior doctors, they've said that we already have a seven-day NHS. And this is where it gets into dispute about the figures, isn't it? They, they, we do already have a seven-day NHS in, in the most literal sense. But what Mr Hunt is trying to do essentially is to make it less expensive to have doctors working on a Saturday. The, the real bone of contention between the two sides came down to this issue of Saturday working. The doctors were absolutely determined that there should be no change in the current arrangement whereby the whole of Saturday is treated as overtime, attracting much higher pay. Now, Jeremy Hunt and the government side did move quite a lot on that. They agreed that all the hours from 5pm onwards on a Saturday would still be overtime, but that wasn't enough for the junior doctors and their, and their leaders. They absolutely insisted on this point. They wouldn't back down. And really, that's where the negotiations finally foundered. So, Emily Cadman, this does go into the wider debate on the NHS. And it's got these huge funding problems as well that, you know, there's the government is putting billions and billions into it every year. But it comes back down to the simple fact that a lot more efficiencies are needed. You need to get more out of what's already there. And it's got to cope with an ageing population you're needing more from the health service is this just the first of many battles we're going to see over the health service the simple answer sebastian is yes the nhs is under immense pressure as are all health services in all of the advanced economy we are getting older drugs are getting more expensive and we also want more all of these are creating a cocktail for all big advanced health services on how they deal with them You'll have seen plenty of headlines over the years saying that the NHS budget has been protected. Now it's certainly been protected compared to other government departments, but it is growing much more slowly than it has done in the past. And the creaks and the cracks are starting to show. So when we look at this, Sarah, at the at the dispute over this, because one of the things that junior docs are talking about is hours here as well, about how long they're required to work. You know, from your point of view, do you think the new contract is fair? I would argue that what it does is to move the health service in the direction that most of the other public services, let alone other jobs and professions, have had to move in recent years. We do now live in a 24-7 society. You know, I clearly remember the days when... Shops used to close every Wednesday at lunchtime. Now, five minutes from my house, I have two 24-hour opening supermarkets. The world has changed in the last 30 years. But the doctors, you could argue, haven't changed in making this issue of Saturday as an overtime day so sacrosanct. And if you look at what the new terms and conditions that the police have had to accept, that teachers have had to accept... These other professions, you know, arguably broadly similar to medicine, have accepted that pay must be linked more to performance. You know, certainly in the case of other comparable professions or categories of workers like air ambulance pilots, for instance. Prince William, our second in line to the throne, he doesn't get overtime pay when he works on a Saturday. So... I would argue that this contract is bringing medics into line with what's happening in society more broadly. But Emily, one argument I've certainly heard from the junior doctors, they would say, is that schools still aren't seven days. and There's still many elements of public services that are still Monday to Friday um, in terms of their primary offering. You know, Do you think the NHS is going to have no choice but to go in the direction that Sarah suggests? 
It's an interesting question and one that strikes to the really fundamental question about what it means to be an employee in this generation. One posting on social media that got immense amounts of pickup this week was a junior doctor saying he had requested a constituency appointment with Jeremy Hunt for a Saturday and was told he didn't work on Saturdays. It's a cheap shot, but it gets into a broader sense of what do we expect from the people we employ. And with employees accepting, for us, for example, we're always available on mobile phone. What do our bosses give in return? This is now an issue for the health service, but it's a debate and a fight that's going to be going on across many industries, both the public and the private sector. But it's, it's particularly it's particularly harsh for the NHS, isn't it? Because people look up to doctors a lot. They see them as very admirable, professional people who they really, you know, they, they trust a lot more than, say, journalists like us. So when you see the junior doctors on strike outside, it's a very powerful and emotive image. So it may happen elsewhere in the public service, but I think it feels like this doctor one is particularly harsh. Do you see a sense of that? I think so. I was up in Leicester earlier this week and I was uh, walking around and I saw a junior docket picture line. These are professional, well-dressed, respectable, highly educated, some of the people who are normally being held up at role models. So a very strange experience to see role models on a picket line. Well, this is it because we're normally used, Sarah, to seeing sort of the RMT and the tube drivers bring London to a standstill and junior doctors are very very different to that. I suppose the question now is, how does this end? Because it's been said that they're going to impose the new contract on the junior doctors despite this strike, despite other strikes, that there's no backing down. Is that that the end game in, in your view? The BMA, the British Medical Association, the the trades union for the doctors, is still considering further strikes. They've not yet announced exactly what format they're going to take. There obviously is potentially the nuclear option of removing even emergency care. Which has been discussed, I believe, along the BMA. it, it had initially been intended to be part of the last strike but the BMA did pull back a few days before the strike happened and said no they would actually provide emergency care but perhaps a key issue is to what extent the doctors will continue to take the public with them. If one looks at the recent opinion poll findings support for the doctors seems to be holding solid amongst those who've always supported them. But I noticed, interestingly, this week, one of the polls showed quite a significant increase in the number dissatisfied with the doctor's action. It's still quite small numbers, but it was rising. And I think that's perhaps a bit of a warning for the for the doctors that they the, perhaps they can't necessarily count on emerging as the good guys, particularly when there is so much polling evidence again that the public very much wants and supports this Conservative Party pledge of a seven-day mm. NHS. And it's the knowledge of that support that's giving David Cameron this determination to push it through. And I suppose it's the money as well. When you pointed out, when ordinary people look at the amounts that junior doctors are being paid, they admire that. But if they see them going on strike over and over again, over money, essentially, over time, and that's when it sort of gets a little bit... I think so. And I thought it was very powerful when Sir David Dalton, who's been leading the negotiations for the government, noted in in a letter to the health secretary last week that the only sticking points now were around money, were around pay, because earlier the doctors had made the case this was about patient safety and the government did move to satisfy some of their concerns on that. But I thought Sir David, who's an impartial person in this 
fight or he is hospital chief executive, you know, has the profession's best interests very much at heart. But he did state it is now just about pay. And finally, very briefly, Emily, you mentioned that this is just the first of many battles. Once the junior doctor thing gets resolved, whether it's the government caves in or the doctors caves in, where's the next big battle on the NHS, do you think? The one that's always going to come up is access to medicine. And there's a massive tension in the government's agenda between giving people, particularly on cancer drugs, access to the best and the latest drugs and the requirement of localism, that each community can decide what's best for itself. That's going to bring a postcode lottery, something that all politicians hate. But whilst they love localism, that battle's going to keep going. And now on to Fleet Street and the state of Britain's newspaper industry. And first, before we talk about the independent, we're going to look at the EU referendum, which is going to be fought as much among the pages of newspapers as it is between politicians. And so far, those campaigning for Britain to remain in the EU are lacking friends. And so this answers the question, how are pro-EU people going to get their case across? So, Henry, you're sort of just in between the FT's media correspondent, political correspondent. It's your idea of me to ask this question to. You've got the Express, the Mail, the Telegraph, and even the Times are anti-EU. And dare I say it, the FT is one of the very few papers that is going to put across a pro-case for staying within the EU. How much is this going to shape the debate? Um, and does this say something about how poor the case is to stay in, or is it just the bias? of those papers? I think what newspapers are really wrestling with is what do their readers think? How far can they push their readers and how far do they need to be pulled by their readers in their editorial pages and their news coverage? It will shape the debate. What's on newspaper front pages feeds back into the number 10 Downing Street, forces them to, to make certain statements, forces the campaigns into particular points of view. And this is what newspapers although it's a challenge for them, they love. They love the influence. They love being the centre of attention. You'd expect them to see a sales bump. You'd expect them to try and play play up to the crowds to some extent to try and get in a bit more bit more sales, a bit more advertising in the run-up to a referendum. Because if you look at the marketplace, the Guardian is probably also, again, pro-EU, the Daily Mirror as well, and as I mentioned, the FT before. But even those papers, and I include ourselves here, there have been stories that have not been too positive about the case for staying in, because the case for staying in hasn't really been put that well so far, I would argue. That may be the case. I would say, actually, perhaps a more important issue is those Eurosceptic papers, the, the, the papers that really think there's a, a fundamentally broken approach in Brussels and these people are completely deluded and out of touch, they may come round at the last minute and say, but it's better than the alternative, which is a bunch of fruitcakes on the, on, the, on the leave side. But they could, at every single point, they, they have a choice of whether their Euroscepticism is loud and noisy and annoying for the government or whether it's muted and whether it's reduced to one or two columnists. And so even if even papers that back Brexit have editorial decisions to make that will really influence the debate. Well, it certainly doesn't seem to be very quiet so far, Robert. Every day, I seem to have papers full of negative stories about the renegotiation or the state of Brussels and, the, and they gloriously report all the p- opinion polling that shows the debate swivelling in the Brexit direction. Well, I think one of the important points to bear in mind, and I agree with everything Henry has, has said, but I think the real influence that newspapers have in terms of the Brexit debate is the way they shape the broadcast coverage. The, the real point is that the BBC, ITN, Sky, they are also heavily influenced by the agenda from the newspapers. If you look at the news organisations you're talking about, 
set aside the Daily Mail, the Times, the Telegraph. These are not mass audiences, and most of the people who read these newspapers have already made up their mind and have certainly been bombarded with Eurosceptic views for a very long time. So I don't expect it to change the debate. The impact is how it shapes the broadcast agenda. Well, exactly, because when you turn on Newsnight or BBC newspaper reviews or what have you, everything seems to come from those newspaper front pages, which is a big strength Fleet Street still has, isn't it? It will be interesting to see. We'll have to wait till after the vote to know for sure if they go full-throatedly against David Cameron and in favour of Brexit and lose, then we might have a sense of what power they have. I I think for what it's worth, the Times will hedge its bets. I think it will, in the end, come out in favour of staying in the EU, but will let its columnists have full reign to attack it. What what you've really seen with the Times, I think, is is an onslaught against UKIP and saying that these guys can't be trusted, which is a way of hinting that you know, even if it has some Eurosceptic coverage, it's it's not really backing the case. Whereas the Telegraph is really playing up the grassroots Euroscepticism, the split in the Tory party, because that reflects a lot of its readership. And I think this is a real problem for the out campaign in the end, is that it, it is going to find it extremely hard to answer the question, well, what is it going to be like when we've left? It's a fundamental weakness of the out campaign because they don't agree themselves. And it's a very, very powerful line of attack that you're going to hear again and again. One thing I'm sure our listeners will be wondering, Henry, is how do newspapers decide this sort of thing? Because to us, we sort of have an idea of you have institutional bias, you have your leaders and what have you. But how will newspapers eventually decide what their position is? And is the news coverage affected by that? Or is it something that is separate? Because obviously in American journalism, it's a total Chinese war between their comment and their news. But it's not so clear in, in UK papers. It certainly isn't. And a lot of cynics would say the way that newspapers make up their minds is the proprietor makes a call to the editor who then publishes an editorial. And that influences is the news coverage as well. It's, I think in reality, it's it's much more complex and you have very different types of characters who own these newspapers. Jonathan Rothermere at the Daily Mail or cha- chairing their parent company is a, is a slightly laid back figure. He's a much younger figure than the editor of the Daily Mail, uh, Paul Dacre. You compare that to Aidan Barclay, who really is in charge and pulling the strings at, at the Daily Telegraph. And, and he's seen as someone close to the business community who might say, actually, my friends in the business world don't want to pull out of Europe. So the Daily Telegraph shouldn't in the end black that case. And it is, I mean, it's it's something of a pastiche and a false one. That is that Rupert Murdoch consistently phones up his editors and tells them what to think. The point is Rupert Murdoch appoints editors who think the right things in the first place, as far as he's concerned. And we may have two Murdoch papers backing different sides. I mean, Absolutely. the Sun is likely to back out and the Times is likely to back staying in. So while we're talking about newspapers, this isn't strictly a political story, but it's one I'm sure our listeners will care about a lot, which is announced um, this week that The Independent and The Independent on Sunday will print their last printed editions at the end of March and go online only. So I believe this is the first British newspapers to close in almost two decades. Just before we started recording, Robert, you were recalling when the Independent first launched. You know, what kind of effect did it have on Fleet Street and as well as on the political community as well? Oh, yes, Sebastian, you're making me feel very old here. <laughs> it is, nevertheless, it was a remarkable time when the Independent came out. It was mid-80s, 1986. It was the badge paper for everybody of of my generation. It was the cool paper to read. The Times was in the middle of the whopping dispute. A lot of its best journalists left to go to the Independent, although the Independent was actually founded by ex-Telegraph journalists. The Guardian was really quite dull at the time. The Independent came in with fantastic use of pictures. It was witty. It was interesting. Had brilliant marketing campaign representing itself as a badge paper. And it was, for a while, the cool paper. It was the one thing that everybody who was smart read. And it was almost like the SDP of the newspaper industry. It identified a gap between the old Labour, rather dull Guardian, and the Conservative Times that was having a big problem. And it 
dashed into that market. It changed them. They responded. They reacted to the independent. They got their act together. And when they did, its market share shrank. Looking at the circulation figures, Henry, it seems that uh, that the independent hit its peak in the late 80s, where it was about 430,000 copies. And it's essentially been on a very slow decline then. But what has brought it right to the end now? I think that there is a case that the owners have just had enough for them. The, the Lebedevs, the rich Russians, they were coming, they were looking for a place in British society. They may well have found that. And even though the losses are smaller than they were a few years ago, they may say, look, we, we've got a different approach now. But I, I think, and there's going to be sad news about job losses. There's going to be pretty difficult news about the numbers of newspapers sold in the UK. I mean, the shrinking news market may have a democratic issue. But look, the magazine industry is constantly closing titles. You saw Lad Mags go last year, the last of them, because fashion's changed. And Robert was talking about it being cool. Things that are cool sometimes become not cool. And so I think the idea that we lose a newspaper, which is quite a young newspaper, it does obviously bring bad things about it, but it's also a sort of natural process. There is a certain sense, though, Robert, that we have a sort of a loving of institutions in Britain. I think when you have something like the independent, particularly one that was started on sort of quite high principles of being free from proprietorial influence, being young and funky. So when you have that closed, I think a lot of people do feel that it's like a little part of British society has just been taken away. I'm not sure I'd ever think of it as funky, but it was... Um, I, I, I think I, I think it's it's one of those things that hits a general... In a way, without overdoing my metaphor, when David Bowie died, it hit a certain demographic of people who, who, who associated him with their youth and their early years. And I think the independent in a way is similar it we associated it with becoming adults in a particular period of our lives and people of my age and a bit younger will remember the independent as being an integral part of their identity so i think that's why it hits so much of course it hasn't actually gone away it's going online and it won't be the last newspaper to decide to stop printing and 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 be entirely online I'm going back to our earlier discussion, Henry, though it is, you know, this means there's only one left-wing um, sort of broadsheet paper now, at least in its tone, which is The Guardian now. Um, you've obviously still got The Daily Mirror, which is more red top in its view. This is going to mean particularly because The Independent has run a lot of stories that are sympathetic or insightful into the Corbyn world, and they're also very pro-EU paper. So it's certainly going to have effect on political reporting in the UK. I, th- I think so, but I, The Independent never had the staff of of any of the other big broadsheets. So in terms of its original material, it could take a it could take a different stance. I think if you're looking at political balance, you would say the Guardian website is much more powerful than the Guardian newspaper has been. And so there has actually been a rebalancing online towards more liberal sources or more left-wing sources. And and the Telegraph is which is the dominant quality player in print is not the dominant quality player online. So I, I would take that with a pinch of salt. Yes. And it's going to be interesting to see that online thing, Robert, though, isn't it? Because the independent website is very different to the independent paper. And the editor of the independent paper, Amal Rajan, is taking over as the website as well. So that leadership is going to stay the same. But the products are very different. So you can't see this as the death of the independent as it is in print today. Well, I mean, clearly it is the death of the independent in print. The products will evolve. They will be different. But they have evolved considerably already. The independent as it was printed today, bore very little resemblance to the Independent when it came out. It bore very little resemblance to the Independent 10 years earlier. It's been evolving because part of the problem the Independent has had is that it has had to keep evolving to try and find a niche, which it has unfortunately continually failed to find. 
Well, I'd say to our listeners, if you want to know more about this, you should read Henry's excellent long read that was in the FT. And I believe there's a podcast of it as well, so you can listen to him read it out for you. Just very if pref- you miss it and print it online. Exactly. <laughs> Just to quickly finish, Henry, you know, the state of the British newspaper industry everywhere is facing issues at the moment. You know, is there any good news in the in Fleet Street at the moment? There is good news, and it's that tabloid profits have fallen very sharply. So the Sun and the Mirror make much less money than they, uh, they used to, and they they were the, the stalwarts of the of the industry. But the Times used to lose a lot of money, does not now. The Guardian used to lose even more money, and it doesn't lose as much now. The Telegraph remains fairly profitable. So there is some money there. There is some breathing room. The model may not be there, but there is time and there is cash. Well, as you said, Robert, I'm sure this is something we'll be returning to in the future. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all, I guess, for joining, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next Saturday. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast presented by me, Claire Barrett, the editor of FT Money. The Money Show comes out every Wednesday and you can download it at ft.com slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.